Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. When I feel up, okay, I'm up. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 166 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, Translunar Injection. We left off last week just as Apollo 8 cleared the tower. Here's the clip. Engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit. We have, we have lift off. Lift off at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Looks good. We have cleared the tower. Now the rocket turned and headed onto its programmed flight plan. Rolling pitch program called Borman, his voice shaking with the vibrations of the ride. Meanwhile, the Cape Launch Center yielded command to the mission control in Houston, where Mike Collins was serving as Capcom. If the booster suddenly went wild and mission control ordered an abort, it would be Collins who would relay the command. But inside Apollo 8, the Saturn's roar was so loud that Borman's crew might not have heard him. And they no longer could hear each other. Here's Walter Cronkite commenting on the launch. Oh, and there's the rumble in our building. It looks good. It looks like a good flight. It's a beautiful takeoff so far. This building is shaking under us. Our camera platform is shaking. But what a beautiful flight. Man, perhaps on the way to the moon. If all continues to go well. What a puppeting we're taking here. It's probably more severe than the men in the spacecraft itself. Just 40 seconds after liftoff, the Saturn went supersonic and the ride smoothed out. Now there was quiet again. In Apollo 8's left seat, Borman kept a watchful eye on the trajectory readouts. If at any point the Saturn should malfunction, he would be able to whisk them away from it by twisting the abort handle, which would set off the escape rocket. But The Saturn was behaving very well, and from Houston, Mike Collins' message of reassurance 
came through loud and clear. Apollo 8, you're looking good. The Saturn tore through the atmosphere on a column of thrust hundreds of feet long. The booster slowly arced over until it was almost horizontal, following the curve of the Earth, picking up speed and receding into a deep blue sky. As the rocket penetrated the rarefied upper atmosphere, the exhaust fanned out into a broad plume of golden flame. Now here's Paul Haney from Houston. One minute, 15 seconds. Then we're a little more than half a mile into the sky and about uh, nearly four miles downrange. You're now hearing the voice of Paul Haney at Mission Control in Houston. And our great BU cameras are picking up the spacecraft. One minute for 40 seconds. All looks great. Now in 15 seconds, the inboard engine should cut off on that first stage. That's the one inboard engine. Wow. And then into the mission and uh, Frank Borman has confirmed each event as it's been passed to him by Mike Collins at this point. In the command module, Borman and his crew scanned the instruments and felt the mounting force of acceleration as the massive load of fuel in the first stage was consumed. Soon their chest began to flatten. The G-meter climbed to 4.5. Then... The forces of acceleration abruptly vanished as the first stage shut down on schedule. At that moment, the men could have been sitting on a catapult. They flew forward against their straps with tremendous momentum. Anders was sure he would go right through the instrument panel, but their harnesses held them firmly. Borman felt the sudden jarring and worried about the stress placed on the booster. Now I have a couple of clips on the staging. The first you will hear is from the CBS coverage, and the second will be the astronauts. The crew has been given a go for staging. Inboard out on time, Frank Mormon says. 25 the more seconds. Engines. The other four engines of the first stage should cut out. Two minutes, 25 seconds. Rocket then will be 20 miles high and going 3,000 miles an hour. And there is the staging. We see uh, an S1C, the first stage cut off. S2 has ignited, we can confirm. And the thrust looks good. All engines, all sources show the second stage is burning perfectly. They had their seconds into the mission. They had their fingers crossed for that one. It was two of the engines that failed on the second stage in the and second. The missile has been released at the Cape. Three minutes into the flight, we're 50 miles high and about 10 miles downrange.
Suddenly, right on schedule, there was a muffled bang as the emergency escape rocket was jettisoned, taking the boost protective cover along with it. Daylight streamed into the cabin as the cabin's module windows were uncovered. For a stolen moment, rookie Anders glimpsed a view available only to the space traveler, a vivid bright arc of ocean and clouds against a darkening sky. Here's ABC's call on the escape tower. 50 miles high. There's the escape tower separating. And about 10 miles downrange. Three minutes, 25 seconds. We have, uh, we have verified that the tower has jettisoned. The crew has verified the tower has jettisoned. Every event taking place exactly as scheduled. Frank Borman says staging was smooth, and he says the ride now is even smoother. At T plus five minutes, it was quiet. The G-forces had lessened, and there were more welcome words from Mike Collins. Apollo 8, Houston, your trajectory and guidance are go, over. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, you're looking real good, Frank. Apollo 8 passed the last fringes of the atmosphere, continuing to accelerate. At eight minutes, a rapid vibration set in, the same kind that had rattled the previous Saturn V to the point of malfunction. Thankfully, it did not build beyond a mild shaking, but Borman was relieved when the second stage shut down and fell earthward, its work done. At 8 minutes 45 seconds, the third stage kicked in with a mild jolt and functioned normally, getting up the last bit of velocity until 11 and one-half minutes after liftoff. It too fell silent. Apollo 8 was in orbit. Now I have a clip of William Anders recalling the launch. This was recorded in 2013 as part of the John Glenn Lecture Series. But uh, we trained for every possible emergency that we could think of, every possible uh, environment. We had centrifuges. We did survival training in the jungles, in the desert, uh, in the ocean. Uh, we were on the centrifuge up to 15 Gs. Uh, everything you could think of. We had a thing called the launch abort trainer, which rattled around a bit, you know, and uh, Frank, whose job it was to decide whether he would abort, had a hand handle that would fire the abort system. And But nobody had ridden on the Saturn V, and even though there had been, what, two unmanned Saturns, uh, apparently they didn't have the accelerometers in the right place because they soon, no sooner lift this thing off when I realized that we had missed one major part of the simulation. The, the, the sideways vibration with those big, huge, 1.5 million pounds thrust each engines, gimbling around, trying to keep this thing straight. Uh, the center of gravity was way down here. We were up here like a ladybug on the end of your automobile antenna. So as it moved down here an inch, this thing moved a foot. And uh, it, we, I literally felt like I was being thrashed around like a, a rat in the jaws of a, of a terrier. 
And I was convinced that the, the fins were bouncing up the uh, girders of the spacecraft, of the uh, launch uh, tower. Also, the noise was deafening. There was no way we could communicate. Now, Frank, he told me later, was smart enough to take his hand off this launch abort uh, handle because as uh, fighter pilots, it's much better to die than it is to screw up. <laughs> and uh, that's why we're all short, you know. And uh, But uh, uh, there was no way, if I detected, I was sort of the, the flight engineer, so if I detected any kind of problem uh, on the uh, instruments, I couldn't see them, they were just kind of going like that. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to communicate them to Frank, and if I had seen him and communicated, he wouldn't be able to do anything about it anyway. Well, we uh, it seemed like an hour when we cleared the tower, and uh, the noise started coming down a little bit, and things smoothed out, and I thought, boy, if we missed that in our training, what else have we missed? <laughs> so it was pretty spectacular, and then as we as we uh, burned the fuel out of this first stage, it's extremely heavy, probably, what, half of the weight of the vehicle? That's when it was loaded. As it burned its fuel down, the whole thing became much less massive. But the thrust was the same. You know, for those who went to high school physics, F equals MA. So as F is the same and M goes down, A goes up. So at, uh, at cutoff, what do we have? About four Gs, something like that, four and a half Gs. Suddenly, the rocket cut off. Instantaneously, some retro rockets fired. Uh, then the, the uh, uh, primer cord sheared off the first stage. To me, where my fluid, we were on our back, so the fluid in my ears were pinned to the back of my head. And suddenly it all sloshed forward. And I could not resist throwing my hand up in front of my face. Like it felt like I was being catapulted, like one of these Captain of Castile catapults right through the instrument panel. Okay, that went, so I threw my hand up. About the time my hand got up here, the second stage cut in. Whack! <laughs> so I looked up and I had my, my face, my helmet on, and here was this gash across my helmet. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, when the big boys see this, you know, it's gonna just, you know, justify the rookie position. Well, we made it into orbit, and somewhere along the line, uh, I collected the helmets, and I noticed that the other two guys each had a slash. So my point is, there's no rookies on the first Saturn flight. Everybody's a rookie. But it was a heck of a vehicle, and uh, to, uh, uh, to the credit of uh, Werner von Braun's team uh, down at Huntsville, they built one heck of a rocket. And uh, I think part of the problem with NASA today is they just don't have that kind of capability anymore. And uh, it's going to be hard to see. I mean, interesting to see if they can come up with uh, another in Saturn V, but this time with digital technology. Now let's move on to translunar insertion. A lunar mission consists of a series of time-critical maneuvers strung end-to-end. Two and a half hours after the Saturn lifts off from the Cape, the lunar phase of the mission normally begins with the translunar injection. Midway through the second revolution in Earth orbit, the Saturn 4B stage is reignited, increasing its velocity from 25,500 to 35,500 feet per second. After the S-4B engine cutoff, 
the command and service module separates from the booster. The velocity from the translunar injection maneuver places the spacecraft into an orbit 250,000 miles high with the moon at the highest point of the orbit. Now, Apollo 8 was 115 miles above the Earth, moving at a speed of 17,400 miles per hour. The difference with this flight versus Apollo 7 would occur in two and a half hours. At that time, they would reignite the third stage, the S-4B, for a little over five minutes and tip the balance between gravity and momentum enough for Apollo 8 to leave Earth orbit and reach the moon's gravitational sphere of influence. Borman told his crew he didn't want to catch anyone staring out the window because they had a tight schedule. Of course, Anders knew that as well as his commander, but to be in orbit for the first time and not look outside. That was easy for Borman to say. He and Lovell had been here before, once or twice. When Borman wasn't watching, Anders stole glances of the Earth, a magnificent panorama of color and bright clarity that filled his window. Brilliant white plumes and swirls of clouds crisscrossed land and ocean. Somewhere over the midnight earth, lightning glowed in clouds far below like flashbulbs going off. And when they came over the coast of California, Anders spotted San Diego, the scene of his childhood exploration of hills and rabbit trails. He wanted to linger here, taking in the ever-changing beauty of his home. But the time flew by. Then there was a small mishap. Lovell went under one of the couches to adjust a valve and accidentally inflated the life vest attached to his spacesuit. He would always remember the disgusted look on Borman's face. Here's the clip. This is Apollo Control Houston. The flight director has just advised the room that the the booster, the S-4B, uh, all consumable sources, every bit of data we, we have looked at and examined, indicate we should proceed with the TLI burn. Go back to the crew. Looking good, both from a guidance and a consumable viewpoint. It all looks go. Roger. The DSC is all yours, Bill. Thank you. Apollo 8 Houston, we'll have LOS in uh, one minute. We'll pick you up again over Tanana Reeve at 209er. Roger, Michael, thank you. All right, how's it feel up there? Very good, very good. Everything is going uh, real well. It looks just about the same way it did three years ago. And Bill got time from uh, playing with his tape recorder to look out the window? Roger, we had one uh, little uh, incident here. Uh, inadvertently uh, popped one light there, so we got one full May West weather here. Roger, understand. This is Apollo Control, Houston, and it'll apparently wrap it up via Canary Islands, Tanana Reeve. We are due to acquire at two hours and nine minutes into the flight, about 15 minutes from now. You heard in the tag end of that conversation, uh, 
a fairly relaxed Mormon commenting on the fact that it looked very much like it did three years ago when he and Jim Lovell were flying Gemini 7. And he also reported that inadvertently a Mae West had been inflated. We're not just sure whose Mae West it was, but uh, the supposition here that is that one tank or one side of the life jacket on the command pilot might have uh, been inadvertently triggered and uh, we're sure it's causing no difficulty and it'll be deflated and stowed at the proper time with the suits. So at, uh, we'll be back at Tanana Reeve in about uh, 10 to 12 minutes. This is Apollo Control, Houston. Frank Borman also had a minor error during this portion of the flight. Here's the clip. This is Apollo Control, Houston. At 2 hours, 15 minutes into the flight, we have had a chat with the crew over at Tanana Reeve. And uh, among other things, Frank Mormon reported uh, that, this, that he was Gemini 8, which was a cause for a few smiles. Some wag finally added, remember now, you're Gemini 7, not Gemini 8. And here's how the conversation went. Apollo 8, Houston, through Tenantary, over. All right, here, Apollo 8, we don't have anything for you, we're just standing by, looking good. Apollo 8, Houston. Gemini 8, Apollo 8. Roger, Gemini 8, Houston. Uh, we'd like to bring you up to date on the comp situation while we got some quiet time here. Uh, we'll be LOS to Nanareve in another two minutes. Uh, we'll be picking you up over Carnarvon. Very good, thank you. Right. Gemini 7, not 8. And that wrapped up the conversation via Tanana Eve. We'll be back. But aside from those very minor difficulties, everything went like clockwork. What so many had doubted, including Borman, was actually happening. Apollo 8 was checking out perfectly. And at last came the word the three astronauts had been waiting for. And ironically, it came from the man originally slated for Apollo 8's center seat, Mike Collins. One of the most momentous directives ever given. It was spoken with remarkable calm in the coded language of spaceflight. Apollo 8, you are go for TLI. Here's the clip. Apollo 8, Houston. Brad Houston. All right, you are go for TLI, over. Roger, understand, we're go for TLI. As Apollo 8 drifted through the darkness over the Pacific, the last minutes ticked by until the scheduled ignition of the third stage. If everything went as planned, Borman and his crew would be passengers while the computer did all the work. With 10 seconds to go until ignition, the computer gave a coded message to the astronaut a flashing number 99, which translated meant, are you sure you want to do this? Lovell answered by pushing the button marked proceed, and moments later, at mission elapsed time 2 hours and 47 minutes and 37 seconds, the third stage rocket came to life with a long, gentle push. This time, the ride really did feel like the simulator. 
The men sank into their couches with barely more than the force of normal Earth gravity. Here's the clip. Lowell confirms ignition. And the thrust is okay, Booster says. Immediately, they sense the rocket veering to one side as it headed out of the Earth's orbit and onto a course for the moon. Trajectory specialists in Houston watched the moonship's path and sent word via Mike Collins. You're looking good here, right down the old center line. Borman kept his eyes on the attitude indicator, ready to take over steering if the booster's automatic system failed. Anders monitored the pressures and temperatures in the fuel tank, and Lovell called out their ever-increasing speed from the computer readout. The numbers galloped upward, 30,000 feet per second, now 33,000, and finally 35,532 feet per second, some 24,226 miles per hour, the speed necessary to reach the moon on a free return path. At that instant, 5 minutes and 18 seconds after ignition, the computer shut down the engine automatically. Here's the clip. And Borman says we've got Seco. Cutoff was right on the second. Here's how the astronauts recalled translunar injection. Well, the, uh, the thing that we might, since you probably are, I hope you're interested in, in hearing a little bit about the flight route too, but the, uh, the launch was exciting. And then we went on to the coast. Uh, we went around once and a half around the Earth and then over, was over Hawaii, wasn't it? We got the go for TLI, much uh, go for translunar injection. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think we would ever get that because I knew darn well that NASA wouldn't commit, it, commit us unless everything was really perfect. But over Hawaii, uh, Mike Collins said, Apollo 8, you go for TLI. We lit the S-4B, started out, picked up, what, 25,000 miles an hour? 35,000 feet a second. 35,000 feet a second, 25,000 miles an hour and uh, started toward the moon. Now, in order to keep the heat load equal on the spacecraft, we if that was the sun, we positioned ourselves perpendicular to the sun and then just rotated all the way to the moon. We, so we, I think we probably have the record for revolutions. Yeah. Uh, and it, it barbecue kept, mode. It, yeah, we call it barbecue mode. From Mission Control, Collins had good news for the departing moon voyages. We have a room full of people that say you look good. And one of those people was Chris Kraft, sitting in the back row of the control room. Kraft rarely came on the radio during the mission, and Borman was surprised to hear his send-off. Quote, You're on your way. You're really on your way now. End quote. Still, Inside the command module, there was nothing to convey this departure to the senses. No sensation of speed whatsoever, just numbers on the computer that changed dramatically when Borman cut loose from the spent third-stage booster, pulled away with a burst from the service module's small maneuvering thrusters, and spun Apollo 8 around. At first, the sight of the third stage itself a hulking cylinder aglow in the unfiltered sunlight of space caught their attention. But then, as the spacecraft turned, Borman's crew could see the place 
they left behind not a landscape, but a planet, a luminous sphere whose roundness was apparent to the eye. Apollo 8 was departing at such fantastic speed that the men could see their world receding from them almost as they watched. Already the entire globe fit neatly within the round window of the command module's side hatch. Right now, though, it wasn't time to look at the Earth. Borman was more concerned about the cast-off third stage. As the flight plan called for, Borman had pulled up within a few dozen yards of the booster to demonstrate the maneuvers that future crews would use to extract a lunar module from its berth. But Borman, anxious to save fuel and to avoid any maneuvers that would affect their trajectory, did not want to prolong the exercise. Furthermore, he knew the booster was scheduled to blow off its excess fuel sometime in the near future, and when that happened, it would be better not to be anywhere nearby. All he wanted to do was get away from it. After conferring with Mission Control, Borman pulsed the hand controller and fired the maneuvering thrusters to pull away. Here's the clip. On for a look. Hi, Houston, Apollo 8, how do you read? Yeah, loud and clear, Frank, how are you? Not sure, we're uh, loud and clear. We're taking pictures of the S-4B. Uh, the uh, post-separation sequence is, is uh, completed, and we seem to have a high gain. Give us a clue as to what it looks like from way up there. Roger. I can see the entire Earth now out of the center window. I can see Florida, Cuba, Central America, the whole northern half of Central America, in fact, all the way down through Argentina and down through uh, Chile. They picked a good day for it. Houston, for information, I'm looking through the scanning telescope now, and I see millions of stars, most of them uh, the venting from the S-4B. But the third stage seemed to be following them. Already it was spewing fans of brilliant ice particles into space, reminding Borman of a huge lawn sprinkler. For the better part of an hour, Borman made anxious queries to Houston on how to get away without disturbing the free return trajectory. Lovell's attempts to realign the command module's navigation platform were to no avail. The sky was full of false stars from the booster, and it was impossible to find any real ones. And right now, the best landmark in this dark, sunlit ocean, the Earth, was out of view. When Collins and Mission Control outlined a small, evasive maneuver, Borman replied, Okay, as soon as we find the Earth, we'll do it. In Mission Control, Borman's words triggered brief, amazed laughter. Finally, after more than an hour, Anders saw the world drift into his right-hand window, and after more deliberations with Houston, Borman fired the maneuvering thrusters once more. Slowly, the third stage dwindled until it was just a bright star, and Apollo 8 
was alone in the translunar void. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.